Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guests today, and I say guests, not guests, <laughs> is the Plant Medicine Law Group. And they are the first law firm to emerge in this space with the express purpose of serving the psychedelic and cannabis industries. Partners Adriana Kurtzer, Serena Wu and Hadas Alterman are entering their eight months with a full rooster corporate and non-profit of clients in both industries. They are here today with the first attorney they added, Alison Hoots, who specializes in religious exemptions for psychedelic use, to reflect on their growth, what they've learned and what they hope to accomplish moving forward. I'm a really big fan of the Plant Medicine Law Group. We started to be present in the psychedelic ecosystem at a similar time, and I love the way they look at psychedelics and the renaissance we are just experiencing. As they contribute to one of the most important parts in the new psychedelic world, the legal framework, which we all need and which every company needs progressing in the space. Please enjoy the show and four lawyers who really know their topics. So welcome everybody to the podcast. This is my first podcast with four people. I'm very excited about this. And I also think it's great because it's a little bit of a interesting situation with having four perspectives on psychedelics in one podcast. So um, yeah, but of course we would like to, uh, I would like to start with everybody to introduce themselves from Plant Medicine Law Group, the people or the firm we talked today. So um, Hadas, why don't you start with this? Hi, Anne. Thanks for having <laughs> us. So let's start with uh, when I was in college in Santa Cruz, I was studying alternative agriculture and working on a permaculture farm um, and then got sort of experientially awakened to the realities of the drug war when I got arrested at a protest in Oakland for civil disobedience um, in January of 2011. So I stayed in jail for about five days. We were treated miserably. And when we were moved into general population with a bunch of other mistreated incarcerated people, I was amazed to learn that everyone that I spoke to, literally every single person who I met, um, and I met a lot of people while in jail because I'm extremely social, even behind bars, Everyone was there for uh, drug-related offenses. And about a year or so later, uh, I, was in a, I was a law school student at Berkeley and became very involved with plant medicine for my own healing purposes. I was out of dinner at that time, um, somewhere, you know, sometime during law school, going to a lot of ceremonies and found myself at a dinner with Michael Pollan while he was writing, who is about to be a guest on your podcast, while mm -hmm. he was writing how to change your mind. And at that moment, it all sort of connected for me from a you know, professional perspective. It became very clear that this space was going to drastically change in the, in the next you know, couple of years. So a little while later, California legalized adult use cannabis. I worked in um, cannabis regulatory compliance for a few years. And then I moved to New York. And one thing led to another, started this law firm with my two wonderful partners. And now I'm Uh, also one of the founding members of the Psychedelic Bar Association and sit on the equity subcommittee of the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board. Wow. So that's like a um, fast development in the last couple of years. Let's move on to Serena. So you're based in California normally. So you, 
does that mean you also take over the California voice of the firm? Um, yes. Thanks, Anne, for having us. And I am trying to do that California and New York as well. Um, Co-founding PMLG with Adriana and Hadas has been an act of synchronicity. I follow the typical path after graduating Harvard Law School. I moved to New York City, and then I started my legal career at Davis Polk as a litigator. I was focusing on complex securities, regulatory, and commercial issues for financial institutions. I did not feel fulfilled at all. And as I was doing my healing work in 2019, things really shifted for me. And I was searching for a way to contribute my legal skills to the plant medicine space. And lo and behold, Adas asked me in 2020, hey, do you want to start a psychedelics law firm uh, focusing on psychedelics and cannabis? And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> I just met her, but I wanted to take this risk and it just felt like things were falling into places for me. And, you know, it's been a magical journey ever since with Hadas, with Adriana, and now with Allison. Okay, so... Of course, now we move over to Adriana, the main, the first person I met in terms of this amazing firm. And I don't know how we actually met, but first of all, before we get into this, um, please introduce yourself. Absolutely. And thank you so, so much for having us on your podcast today. It really is. It's an honor to find this additional way of supporting your hustle as being a guest um, it's amazing to see how the new health club has grown. Your list of interviewees is simply fabulous. So it is an honor uh, and an intimidating honor at that. You and I met in the chat function of SciTech. Right. That's true. And you just have the most fabulous and dynamic follow-up. So I was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, I got my JD from Georgetown University got a master's in design from Parsons. Why not? But through and through, it was my undergraduate at Brown University that still shapes my very peculiar vision of the world. I really see myself as an entrepreneur first and a corporate lawyer second. And it's fabulous to see how my, my day-to-day at Plant Medicine Law Group also reflects that reality. I began my legal career um, doing only Brazilian IPOs at Simpson Thatcher as part of the Latin American capital markets team, and then took a very thick, long journey through the art world, um, which culminated uh, in, in, in a job as the senior advisor to the senior deputy chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts under President Obama. Um, and then it really was, like Serena put it, it was, it was Hadass that acted as the catalyst. I was job searching when I met her. I was considering a return to the law. All of the interviews that I had with you know established law firms just didn't quite fit. And then I remember Hadas in our only IRL hangout before the pandemic saying, well, you know, I'm thinking about launching, you know, a psychedelics law firm. And just the feeling I had inside of me was just like, you have to do it with me. <laughs> and other people that no choice. Uh, no choice. And it was just, you know, and then we all entered the pandemic reality with kind of other situations and then things shifted for the three of us during the pandemic so that it made sense to launch on November 4th. And so today I'm on the board of Doctors for Cannabis Regulations. Um, I run a community called Faith in Psychedelics, which you are a part of, Anne. Um, and then for fun, I run an Instagram account called Jew Who Tokes that explores the relationships, uh, the complicated and beautiful relationships that Jews have with cannabis and psychedelics. But you also have a lot of dark content, I realize. <laughs> you have a lot of dark content, I realized, which is always really good because it's very popular. <laughs> okay, so but now for the first time, we have Alison also on the team uh, and also on the show who as I think you just kind of joined the company very recently. That's right. I was incredibly attracted to Adriana's dark energy, um, which actually says a lot about my career. Um, you know, over the past decade, I did exactly what Serena did. I, I went the straight and narrow path. I was at big AM 100 firms like Fox Rothschild and small boutique firms like Kaylee Nashner. 
And then I worked at government agencies like the anti-discrimination offices in New York and Pennsylvania, and ultimately was at the U.S. Department of Labor's um, Employee Benefits to, uh, Security Administration. And all of that work was really interesting. Um, it was really diverse. Um, you know, I, I did criminal law early on, <clears throat> employment discrimination, intellectual property when I did entertainment law, um, and then mm. the employment and employee benefits law. Um, and I did a lot of transactional work. Um, but after a long time of being in this sort of place of dissatisfaction, um, I started attending a plant medicine church and got very close with the leadership there. And because I'm a lawyer and I can't help but offer help, um, but in, um, I started to uh, offer my legal support to them. Um, and I became a founding director when the plant medicine church incorporated um, and the next thing I knew, I was revising their bylaws and drafting policies and waivers and applying for nonprofit status and basically helping them operate the church. And that was back in 2017. Mm -hmm. By 2019, I had started my own firm to help other plant medicine churches that I had done all by referral. Um, and then by 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, I met Adriana at a psychedelics law meeting. It was sort of a, a brain trust kind of thing. Um, and then the next week she brought me fried chicken for lunch and I was sold. Um, <laughs> I joined the firm, which was great because I had started getting pretty deep into this world. And uh, I've been working now with Shakruna, which is a nonprofit. Um, I'm on their council uh, to, of protection of sacred plants. Um, and I still work with the Plant Medicine Church. Okay. So, I mean, you just talked about the, the plant medicine churches and I mean, I think you guys are called plant medicine and you chose it for the title. And, um, I think it's interesting how at the moment there's also this kind of big discussion. Does it have to be a plant or can it also be something from the lab that's equally, um, a good idea like MDMA or like people start to again, research, um, into molecules and everybody keeps talking now about Sasha Shulgin. So, but Serena, maybe you could tell me why the plant, the word plant is in the title. Yeah. And as you noted, this is an imperfect capture of the variety that's out there, the variety of uses, the variety of substances and whatnot. And a lot of what resonated with us was just the plant the word plant and plant medicine in particular just resonates kind of like our relationships with uh, plant medicine, as well as like this connotation that, you know, a lot of medicine is derived from food, from the plants that are in natural sources. And we don't have a preference over what is coming from a plant, a fungi, or they're synthetically made. But at least with the name for the firm, for the ethos that we're trying to communicate Plant medicine just resonates with our soul. I would put it that way. Okay. Interesting. Um, and uh, maybe Hadass, it seems like you also had a couple of thoughts on this. Um, sure. So I think, you know, I think Serena pretty much captures our thought process a year ago when we picked the name. Um, but I'd also add, you know, when, you know, typically a law firm, most law firms are just the partner's last name or some combination. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason we chose plant medicine was it was the broadest possible term we could think of that would capture what we were trying to do and also be really different, mm -hmm. really specific and really different and really stand out because we were intentionally surfacing onto the, <laughs> the LinkedIn stage as it were, because it was during mm -hmm. the pandemic as a company that wanted to do things really differently. And as a law firm that was not falling in line with the traditional order and the status quo and plant medicine, you know, it could have been entheogen. It could have been something else, but it just felt like this is something that's going to turn heads and, and raise some eyebrows. And that's what we want to do. Okay. So of course the main question that people who ask me if they hear about you is that what is the main thing that your clients right now <laughs> Are requesting and um, 
what is the one thing that is kind of so significant for you and that also might say something about the moment where the psychedelic world is actually in right now. So maybe Adriana, you want to take this? Absolutely. As the head of BizDev for the law firm, BizDev. I, <laughs> I love nothing more than an occasion to say what we do, what we love doing and who we love doing it for. So we are a for-profit law firm that services corporate and nonprofit clients. Uh, we provide a range of services to these categories of clients. We provide general corporate and business counseling, for example, business entity formations. We also offer employment agreements, trademarks, licensing agreements. So basically anything that any company um, that's a for-profit company would need, we do all of that with an extra twist, which is the awareness of what is happening in this space. And that twist is also um, what clients need to know about that is particular to either the psychedelic space or the cannabis space. We also provide uh, dispute resolution, mediation and litigation services. Um, we also get into the area of policy advocacy, which is a very dear part of Hadassah's existence in the firm, both domestically and internationally, as well as social equity reform, specifically in the cannabis uh, space. An additional set of, no, I wouldn't call them services, but clients also really want from us and ask us for introductions in the space. And we really take a lot of pride in how we connect our clients to each other, almost as if we become, you know, clients become a part of what we see as our family of clients. We do diligence clients very carefully, precisely so that connections can flow very organically between them. And also we make introductions between our clients and other individuals in the space that they need to meet. They also turn to us for legal analysis of this emerging market. So really kind of talking candidly with them about what is possible today, what is not possible today, mm. how to prepare for a future in which things are possible. And then our favorite thing is to really act as thought partners with our clients. So our favorite clients are those that call us when they don't even have a partnership agreement yet. They don't have a name yet. All they have is an idea and a willingness to move forward. And we really sit with them from the beginning um, to massage that early idea into a trademarkable name, you know, formal partnership contracts and so on and so forth. And what is the, the one thing that is or was most surprising to you that people or clients are looking into? I'm so glad you asked that because this is very timely. I think two things have been the most surprising to me um, in terms of our clients. One is the role that we've played organizing listening tours. It's wonderful when a client comes in through the door and says, this is what I want to do, but I have the humility to know that I don't know it all. So can you introduce me as mm. part of your mandate in this engagement letter? Can you proactively introduce me to different individuals in the space that will challenge what I'm thinking and will add to my mission? Organizing these listening tours has been fabulous. And then also clients turning to us for very honest, you know, thought partnership on, on how their missions might, you know, ruffle feathers or, or stir some, you know, stir some waters. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, um, same in Europe here, but of course, like every day now you wake up to a new article here about decriminalization and it seems to go very fast. So uh, maybe Hadass, so what are the differences between legalization and decriminalization? I feel a lot of people still kind of don't really know the difference yet. And how is this progressing in, in California versus, let's say, the East Coast and even in Europe, which is like, seems like three different countries or worlds at the moment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's such an important question because... Ultimately, it has to do with what people think they're allowed to do. Um, and I think that there's often, unfortunately, a lot of confusion around what is what. Um, so I'll start actually beneath decriminalization in terms of legal teeth. We have deprioritization, 
And I think that one of the many big tensions that exist in this public conversation around psychedelic policy change is that a lot of people are calling what is deprioritization, decriminalization, and this can have a lot of adverse impacts. Um, so decriminalization is sort of what it sounds like. It's the act of removing criminal sanctions against an act or behavior. Those behaviors or transactions don't become legal. They're just no longer criminal acts. So that's what SB 519 in California would do if it passes. You could consume psilocybin, but you can't open a psilocybin store. Mm -hmm. Deprioritization is you're not changing criminal code. You're not making, you're not removing criminal sanctions. You're just shifting government focus and resources away from an forcing the criminalization of a particular substance. And it's by and large the least efficacious pathway um, of legalization, decriminalization, and deprioritization because it often relies on the voluntary compliance of people like the police. Um, so this is what decriminalized nature tends to do. And it, I think it's important, but it mostly signifies sort of changing social mores and the willingness of a legislative body, for example, to do something with more teeth like decrim or full legalization. But to your original question, legalization of a substance is the process of removing all legal prohibitions against it. So that substance would then be available to the usually adult general population for either purchase and use at will or under some kind of regulated circumstances. And that is happening in Oregon where psilocybin assisted therapy is legal, but you can't just go to a psilocybin store and buy it. You have to go to a licensed, regulated facility. And in terms of, you know, all of the different things that are happening, I mean, we could talk about that for hours, but briefly I'll say, you know, I think what's most helpful is understanding that things are happening on two axes. The first axis is progressive versus conservative. And I think the East Coast is much more conservative than the West Coast. You have Oregon, you have California making all of these advances and New York is just you know, maybe going to decriminalize psilocybin and they've been at it for a year and it still hasn't happened. So things are happening slowly. Um, and then I think the other axes that I like to look at things on is a philosophical one and what's driving the different changes. Um, and just briefly, I'll say, I think that there's several schools of thought. One is the government should have very, very, very little say in how people are interacting with these substances and, and sort of the cognitive liberty argument. And I think the slightly more restrictive uh, school of thought is we do need to regulate these to a certain extent. This is something that should be used in either clinical settings or some other therapeutic setting. And it's really a patient's right thing. It's not a broad everyone free for all thing. Do you guys also look into the situation in Europe or are you just basically looking into America? So we are very involved with what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Jamaica um, and Europe still remains outside of our purview at the moment. Okay. Okay. I think there's um, enough going on in the U.S. to deal with, especially the complications between the laws, you know, for example, federal and state laws that, you know, we have enough to tackle here. Yeah, but I mean, some companies are coming to Europe now, American companies. We generally have some relationships with European mm -hmm. firms and, and we, you know, reach out to them when necessary. Um, mm -hmm. Plus, all of us are only licensed in the states that were licensed here in the U.S. And that's where we want to thrive and learn the most that we can because it is mm -hmm. such a huge area. Just a thought that came to mind was we found out the other day that in Georgia, um, they're now allowing lawyers to be censured for providing advice to clients in the cannabis industry. Mm, okay. Wow. And the issue is that there is a conflict between federal law and state laws where state laws permit one thing that a federal law would not. So for example, cannabis, you know, lots of states are now legalizing it is still a scheduled drug on the federal schedule. And it's a conflict that we have to negotiate every day and, and actually puts us at risk in certain ways. Um, and we have to figure out how to negotiate that, you know, our practice. Um, it's related to even um, something that we've been working on a lot lately, <clears throat> which is what I have specialized in um, or have been working a lot in, mm. is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And there is a federal 
version, but there are also state versions. And the reason why is the federal, people call it RIFRA, um, only covers federal agents and actors. So if you are a plant medicine church, for example, and a state actor comes to your door, like the local police, the federal RIFRA does not cover you. You have to see whether there are either a, a, what they call mini RIFRA or state RIFRA or something in the state constitution that protects you for your exercise of religious um, freedoms. So there's a lot going on here. And I think we're doing a lot to focus and really excel at these issues here close to home. Although I'm sure, you know, there are certain things that we could assist with in Europe if it were to come up. But I mean, for example, because I, I remember seeing in the documentary, I think on Netflix, one episode about this, one of the churches, right? That one of the ayahuasca churches. So how is this, like if somebody can just go there, let's say to every Sunday or when the mass is and, and take ayahuasca and then just, if somebody would get in trouble with this thing, well, but that's a church, so I can go and just... Um, executed there. But other than that, I would not do it. So, but how is the situation? Because I, I keep reading that founding a church is kind of a strategy to escape legal repercussions or like legal um, difficulties you might run into. And like, there's actually a lot of question that's been posed to us about this particular situation. Mm -hmm. Given the limited legal access pathways to using these substances, people are turning to creating a church. I would caution that, you know, creating this as a strategy to get around the Controlled Substances Act is very problematic because that's one of the facts that if a court or the DA finds out, it actually undermines your position. So for churches, for these type of churches, there are groups of people who sincerely have a set of beliefs and a set of practices that involves the use of entheogenic or psychedelic substances. So, so long as they satisfy these certain elements that are enumerated under RIFRA and their practices and their exercises demonstrate that there are, they're really essentially a, a church, then yes, their practice are protected by federal law under the federal RIFRA statute. And possibly if, given the state that they're in, they may be protected by the state version RIFRA But if there's no state version, then they kind of leave them open to other risk on the state level. It's not complicated to set up a church, but because you're dealing with controlled substances, there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of facts and the circumstances that people should look at and also consult with an attorney just to help them figure out where are, like, are you really setting up a church or are you really setting up a strategy to get around? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It should be noted that that church, which is SoulQuest, <clears throat> they actually got um, an application into the DEA for an exemption in order to legally use ayahuasca in prayer. They recently had that application rejected. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that the DEA mentioned the Netflix special. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because it was very interesting to see how this person why he was founding the church and then how many people very fast came on to visit the church on a regular basis. <clears throat> Because also I think it wasn't, it was kind of not near any kind of, you know, cool ayahuasca place in LA or New York. It was just in a not such a populated area where people also were looking into spiritual places. So I thought it was a super interesting episode about this Back to Adriana quickly. So, I mean, on the website, you call yourself like a boutique law firm, which means that like a boutique hotel, it's a very tiny, selected, <laughs> exquisite team of lawyers, but also clients. So, but obviously this industry is kind of exploding. And um, so how do you see your growth in the next couple of years? Because as we know, this will not only be in terms of the companies that are coming into the space, but also it might become way more um, kind of a biotech situation or like a pharma situation that one has to deal with. So how do you plan your, what do you do when you grow up? <laughs> Let's call it that way. I think it's fabulous that 
the three founders of this firm are immigrants and grew up in households that use different languages because they say that children who grow up bilingual have the ability to navigate what might seem like paradoxes simultaneously with less cognitive dissonance. And I think day in and day out, our existence as a law firm is a navigation of tensions, not just the federal and state reality, not just the legal, illegal and gray areas reality, but also the fact that the psychedelic space and the cannabis space are within so diverse and so varied. There's also tension between being a for-profit law firm and having values and a set of ethics that we take very, very seriously. There's also tension between wanting to make money and not taking every client that wants to work with us for a whole host of reasons, some of which we may or may not talk about. So I think that we are a law firm that day in and day out navigates these evolutions and these questions. Um, and we've done a good job. It's really great that we're speaking to you at the end of June, which has really been an inflection point for the law firm. We are now with a full set of clients in both industries um, so that we are bringing on new people and signing on additional expertise as needed. But to your question about you know, how much we want to grow. We need to be constantly reminded that our mission is to expand equitable access to plant medicine while showing companies in the psychedelic and cannabis space, which are not the same, um, how to succeed in these ever-changing, in these ever-changing industries. So boutique means that we live, breathe, and sleep these two industries while creating additional relationships with lawyers that have expertise in areas of the law that our clients might require. So nothing makes us prouder than giving a client an honest answer about what we can and cannot do. And if that's not something that lies within our expertise, having relationships with individuals that we trust and we enjoy working with and bringing them on board so that we can run a project that has everything that a client might need. It's impossible among four lawyers or more to have everything that a client might need in-house. Yeah, of course. We prefer yeah. knowing these spaces and being genuinely a part of these communities and supplementing as needed. And navigating, you know, as it may, the tensions between being for-profit and being politically active in these spaces as well. You know, as we grow and since our inception, the concept of psychedelic lawyering has been central to the way that we've developed this firm. And I think inherent in that is not letting ego stand in the way of us saying, we don't do that. Or, you know, yes, you're a huge name, but we're not going to work with you because we don't like the feeling we get when we interact with you. And we couldn't, you know, with full integrity represent you. Or, you know, wanting to make the circle bigger and invite more attorneys in as opposed to hoarding and keeping people out, which is something that Adriana is especially good at. Very, very inclusive. And also, I think, you know, thinking about the North Star principles and the work starts with fit. You cannot be a grounded person with giving appropriate time to self-work, whether, you know, it's spiritual or psychology or some combination or both or another thing. If you're not giving yourself time to sleep and to eat and to wake up in the morning and do what you need to do, if it's just work, work, work all the time, you're not psychedelic lawyering because you're not prioritizing the things you need to do to keep the rest of your life in balance. And I think part of our thesis is that can't not have bearing on the client. Right. We each have very different and varied relationships to plant medicine within the team. Um, and just to, to give an example of, you know, what Hadass just said, you know, plays out in real life is, you know, we have a mandatory 24 hour shutdown for each lawyer every week. That's because we don't do work altered, but we also want to preserve space within our calendar and our weekly calendar to have our relationships with different plant medicines and to grow and relax and, you know, be a part of those communities as we are. So psychedelic lawyering is not just a theory. 
it actually is something that we actively fold into how we run this law firm as well. So the law firm is kind of, of course, influenced by the spirit of psychedelics, you could say, without going into details. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I would say, I think one of the main ways I've seen the work have bearing on our work as attorneys and as mm -hmm. business owners is I can tell like when I am not in a good place with myself, I have a harder time, you know, managing my time and communicating and that, mm -hmm. that has bearing on how I work with my partners. And I think that there's such a wild, huge feeling of accountability when you're working this closely with a small group of people that you, you know, love and respect. And so I think that if anything, embarking on this project together, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, has made me feel even more pressure in a good way to hold myself accountable to growing and developing and like finding my blind spots and working on them because I respect my partners. So, and then this question goes to, to all of you. So, I mean, if you would like to have like a wish how this renaissance should go in the next 10 years without immediately saying, oh, I wish there wouldn't be pharmacological developments, <laughs> which there will be, and which also I think will be needed for a lot of people who can't go to a fancy retreat or can go uh, to a country where you can go on a retreat. So, I mean, it can be like a total fantasy or like, um, like maybe a picture you had when you became a psychedelic lawyer. So um, that would be super interesting to me. Whoever wants to start first. I think what I've seen in the past year is just there's so much diversity. You know, the spirit of the plant medicine, all of us are touched by it. We're trying to live our lives and create our ethos around it. Many of us have these profound, deep relationships with plant medicine, and that is teaching us to be a certain way in the world. And, you know, in my ideal world, I just would love to see different options for different people. People have a lot of different needs. They have a lot of different wants, whether it's recreational, spiritual, religious, medical, therapeutic, pharmaceutical. I just think that there's a lot of different people with a lot of different comfort zones, a lot of different curiosities. And I just want people to have access to different avenues, you know, that will serve their needs and their wants. And at the same time, the retreats are expensive. The U.S. healthcare system is very problematic. Um, and not a lot of people would still have access if it stays in the medical model, because that can still be very expensive for a lot of people. So I want access points at different price points for different people, whether it's coming yeah. from the nonprofit model or a hybrid, the for-profit model, however it is, because it just feels like it's a gift to me. And I want that gift to be expanded to as many people who want it, who are curious about it and who are drawn to it. Um, I don't know how it's all going to manifest, but at least if I have that vision, I keep it in my head, then I will do everything I can in my power to contribute to manifest that vision. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would also add, you know, how this industry unfolds, famous trip for cannabis is so important. But to me, all of that is secondary to first releasing people who are incarcerated for drug offenses. And we're not super active on Instagram, but I, I saw this tweet and I had to post it. It said, once the dispensary starts looking like the Apple store, it's time to release everyone incarcerated for drug offenses. Absolutely. That, you know, no matter what happens, like even if Serena, what Serena just beautifully laid out does manifest in X number of years, if there is still someone languishing in a cell for, you know, crossing the street with a joint in their pocket in the 90s, like we're not on a good path because it's just so antithetical to all of the things that I think these medicines deeply spiritually are about. I was wondering how, how much do you think, because we talked about this on some clubhouse thing had us, how much do you think Carl Hart influences that discussion right now? I know like the book is very popular. He's all over the news, but now he's moving to Geneva. 
FYI. So uh, as you know, <laughs> I'm wondering how much does a person like him contribute to this discussion or to this problem? It's interesting. I couldn't quantitatively, objectively tell you, but what I would say is that, you know, anytime you have someone normalizing drug use, that does speak to a certain population. I think, you know, especially with his science background, that can be really compelling to people who have, you know, been educated in similar fields. I also think, you know, I'm a fan of, of Carl Hartz. And so I, I don't say this to disagree with him as a whole, but I do think it's interesting to consider when you are someone who is just wrapping their mind around the possibility that maybe psilocybin isn't something we need to throw people in jail for. I think to be confronted with the idea of a casual heroin user, that's a big leap. And it's not on Carl Hart to cater to like the lowest common denominator by any means. I don't think he's for the lowest common denominator. I think he's at, you know, he's good for people with a certain level of sophistication in this conversation. But I do see his sort of theory being used as a straw man potentially. That being said, I think there's so many people who are doing great work addressing the more, you know, undeveloped processes, uh, you know, the smaller theories of change that need to happen first and the, the, the sort of lower hanging fruit. I don't know that he's like the person I would assign to the decrim panel because I think he's just mm -hmm. more sophisticated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of the cool. things I wanted to add to the conversation about what direction we might be moving in is I take great pride in being a pessimist and a pragmatist most of the time. Um, and I think that there are a couple of things that we as a firm get to witness that are cause for concern. So we're coming off the heels. Well, some places in the world are coming off the heels of COVID. And during COVID, we saw a cluster of cultural and political events coming together to put perhaps a disproportionate disproportionate spotlight on psychedelics. So we had a lack of good news <laughs> and some good news coming out of psychedelic research. So there was disproportionate media coverage of True. the small good news coming out of psychedelics. There were also important cultural tipping points that took place right before the pandemic such as Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which cannot be you know, under-described as influential. It really was a tipping point culturally in the conversation about these uh, substances. We then had people stuck at home in front of computers many, many hours and um, with money sometimes to invest in speculative spaces and the frothiness and the noise coming out of the Canadian capital markets um, connected to psychedelics was available for speculation. And so I think that there is demand pushing up from the general population for these substances and for experimentation and for access to therapies. The laws will not move fast enough to accommodate that demand. At the same time, the speculation that's taking place in the capital markets is worrisome um, because The tulip craze and all the bubbles that we know in the world have not really been a reflection of true value in companies. And so not that I have a solution and not that we have a solution, but we've been in the situation to do diligence, some penny stocks. We've been in the situation to speak to entrepreneurs who want to start ketamine clinics, and we worry about what safety protocols they will have in place. So It really is interesting for those of us that work in this space day in and day out and that are paying attention to the minutia of one company, but also getting a sense of what's happening in the space as a whole. There's a lot for us to be worried about and, uh, and be careful with. Okay. Alison, what's your fantasy about the psychedelic renaissance? I feel like I'm, I'm living it a little bit actually, <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I started just working with a church underground four years ago to now getting to work for clients in this space. And there's a lot of change happening. Um, and I think 
it's moving in the right direction, but it clearly is not there. So, you know, I think my, my fantasy about it is to, to realize this goal to come out from under the shadows and being in, and these churches that are doing so much good, a lot of them, you know, they have recommended donations, but they will take less for people who can't afford it. They're really working toward having a diverse uh, membership. Um, so they're doing all this good work, but they're living in fear that the government's going to come in and penalize them for people who I truly believe are exercising sincerely held religious beliefs and using medicine that has been made illegal, um, in my opinion, inappropriately, but still have to navigate the laws. But, you know, in 2022, there's actually going to be a decision by the DEA on RIFRA rulemaking. So there's already a shift happening. Um, I'm actually working right now with Shakruna, which I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. to prepare a guide. Um, you know, I think right now there's a lot of literature out there that talks about what the law is, but it doesn't tell these small churches that are hiding how do you operate? How do you incorporate? How do you do your best to prepare for defenses and claims under RIFRA? And that's something that Shakruna has actually been working with me on and I'm working with them on and we're re hopefully releasing in the next month or two. Um, we're actually still looking for additional funding, everyone. But it's going to be an incredible project because it's going to put in the hands of these churches something, some kind of life best, you know, to mm. put them down the path. You still need an attorney um, <laughs> to figure out some of the nuances, but, you know, I think a lot of these churches have been meandering in the dark and, and this kind of work has been very personal to me and my family and um, has been, you know, it's really guided me out of some dark places. Um, and so my fantasy is to see these churches feel confident and protected. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I've gone full throttle into this field and joined this beautiful firm. I'll highlight a little bit the corporate side because that it really is our bread and butter. It really is really exciting to see what we say as what we describe as ecosystem building companies coming online, preparing for a future in which psychedelics will be legal. So whether it's mushroom substrates or hardware, software, networking platforms, training companies, those are really our bread and butter. That's what we're really passionate about. And so it's, you know, the small and important act of founding a company to build out a certain part of the psychedelic ecosystem. Yes, there is biotech and yes, there is the pharma model. Mm -hmm. It is our belief that that will exist side by side with a whole host of other types of businesses that might, for example, start off as ketamine clinics today, but might service, you know, additional therapies in the future. So really the bread and butter of the law firm are these ecosystem building or profit endeavors. And at the same time, certain nonprofit endeavors that go hand in hand or are important to support the for-profit aspects of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I would also add to that, you know, one of the reasons that ecosystem is important is because there is a lower barrier to entry to own a business, for example, than there is in the biotech space, yeah, um, which true. is, you know, very understandable. And I think that one of the promises that both psychedelics and cannabis as an industry is able to make, and I hope can deliver on in coming years, is that of transformative wealth for individuals, for families, for people who have never had the opportunity to own anything before. Because I think that, you know, no matter how good your MDMA assisted therapy session is, if you can't feed your family, if you can't afford housing, if you don't have access to sufficient health care, your mental health is only going to be so improved, right? Like those are all very vital yeah. things for living. And so I think I personally have no problem with the idea of people profiting off of these industries and, and seeing the industry as an industry per se. I think creating value is a good thing. I want to be paid for my work. I want to pay other people for the work they do for me. 
Um, and so my hope is that we are able to be thoughtful, intentional, and expansive in our thinking, both in terms of legislation and regulation and also, you know, implementation and, and the rollout of these new legal frameworks such that all kinds of people from all different walks of life are able to participate and are able to make, you know, meaningful businesses for themselves and sustain themselves by doing this work. That's a perfect famous last words <laughs> situation. Thank you guys for being on the show. It was amazing as expected. And let us know where everybody can contact you and um, how to get in touch. Absolutely. So please visit our website at plantmedicinelaw.com. Absolutely reach out with any inquiries, any questions to me. It's Adriana at plantmedicinelaw.com, A-D-R-I-A-N-A. If you have questions about the Faith in Psychedelics group, also reach out to me. If you have questions about any kind of policy concerns, any kind of policy initiatives, as well as Hadass's work on the Oregon Psilocybin Subcommittee, please reach out to Hadass. Her email is h-a-d-a-s at plantmedicinelaw.com. For all kinds of compliance and regulatory questions, our regulatory genius and eagle eye is Serena and so much more, as you can see from her participation in this podcast, as well as the Asian Psychedelics Society and the Women in Psychedelics Instagram account. Please reach out to Serena at S-E-R-E-N-A at plantmedicinelaw.com. And also we are working with Shakruna on the church guide, all questions about that, as well as ways in which to support that financially is Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N at plantmedicinelaw.com. So don't be a stranger, reach out. You never know where it can lead. <laughs> all right. Great to have you on the show, guys. Very great information for everybody out there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club Show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.